welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. I'm here today with Daniel Sobo. He is the founder and CEO of Inclusion Expert, a groundbreaking consultancy in the education sector. The consultancy has worked with over 10,000 schools all over the world, offering training and support to professionals working in educational inclusion. They cover such areas as special education needs, free school meals, and gifted and talented. He's the author and co-author of several books, including The Inclusive Classroom and Narrowing the Attainment Gap. He runs master's programs and has been an advisor to the UN and UNESCO. Welcome, Daniel. It's such a pleasure to have you here and chat with you this evening. It's my pleasure indeed. So I'd love to talk more about the schools that you've worked with um, and how you've seen them change over time, or rather how some of the issues may or maybe haven't changed over time. It seems like right now we're, we're at a really unique turning point of crisis and opportunity. And when these two things intersect, it gives us a great opportunity for, for change and for disruption. You know, as schools are reaching out to you and the consultancy, have you seen the topics that they're looking for change over time or, or what does that look like? By time, are you referring to the last two years or the last 20 years? Like the last 20 years. I mean, definitely, I would assume in the last two years, topics have changed because of the state of the world. But how is what's now different than what it was 10, 20 years ago? Well, I think the issues around where the evolution in um, certainly just speaking about the UK, just to start off with, uh, 20 years ago, um, organisations uh, and charities and the, the Ministry of Education here were trying to put special educational needs on the agenda um, and to make it a known entity. So when we use the words dyslexia, ADHD, OCD, and a full range of or ASD, autistic spectrum, and so on and so forth, a full range of sort of different types of needs that um, teachers could identify them. I think that where things are now is that pretty much every teacher who's graduating is fully aware of what dyslexia, dyscalculia, ASD, and all these sort of labels are. So there's been a huge shift in terms of assumptive knowledge. I also think that um, the inclusive culture, uh, certainly amongst children, I mean, all of the the sort of the national frameworks around uh, and looking at how uh, culturally children treat each other. Uh, we're certainly a lot more of an inclusive society now than ever before, both in terms of racial stereotypes, um, sexual orientation, all sort of different types of inclusive attitudes have shifted hugely. Uh, they've continued to shift hugely over the last 30, 40 years. So I think the scene has changed. And I think we've introduced new ideas into the world of inclusion, such as uh, mental health, trauma-informed schools is a concept. Attachment is a key word uh, that's used in England specifically. It's not really commonly used in the States. And then what's happened, I think, along the, the last five to 10 years is you have countries all over the world who now have inclusion-type programs. Now, uh, America uh, and Canada have been up there, and Sweden, to a certain extent, to Finland and Denmark um, and Holland have been up there with England in terms of developing 
special educational needs and inclusive type provisions, but the rest of the world is catching up. Um, the Middle East have been doing it for the last five, 10 years. And um, I was having discussions just in the last two weeks with schools in Bhutan, in Vietnam, in Cambodia, Somalia, Ethiopia, you name it, um, Mali, there's inclusion going on all over the place and that they're all at different stages. We have a Russian speaking program with the Ukraine and they are developing uh, inclusion skills. I mean, there is a huge difference between what's happening there and what's happening in England, for example. But England has found its own quagmires. And so one of the stodgy problems that's emerged as a result of everybody knowing labels is that we've forgotten what individual children are. So a big theme with my books and my work is about arriving at a point eventually where we need to ditch the labels, which are essentially medicalized terms and psychological terms. And there are uses for them. And I, and I argue that in my latest book. But really what we need to be doing is looking at children as individuals. So I think that the next 10, 20 years needs to be, the, the next evolution needs to be about how we no longer think of children as a label, but think of them as an individual. Yeah, that's. I, I know one of the things that you talk a lot about is focusing on meeting the actual needs of students. And I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how you work with schools and how you work with educators to teach them how to do that and to help them you know, find the needs and really teach to the needs of each student. So I think that um, inclusion is something which is most people nowadays has a, have an aspiration for, but the actual technology of how to do it, the skill set of how to do it is an illusion, <laughs> partly because uh, there isn't enough investment at the teacher training level for teachers to be able to do it. And I have spoken very publicly uh, and written publicly about um, how I think it's unfair to ask teachers to teach a very mixed range of children uh, when they haven't been given the skills and how to do it. So inevitably it leads to very stressful classrooms, misbehaviours, which are really an expression of children feeling uncomfortable in the classroom and teachers feeling like inclusion is a burden. So I think the upskilling of teachers is what's needed, uh, ideally at the teacher training level, but if not, then rapidly afterwards or as soon as possible. That's one of the major areas where we where we focused is how to actually teach a class with a full range of children from, you know, whatever you describe that spectrum to be. I just would describe it as a, as a class full of individuals. So there are easy and simple ways of doing it, which is, a, which is a major illusion point, which hangs as a heavy burden or as a heavy curtain over inclusion. Because usually the word inclusion means that it costs more time, more money, more stress. And you're asking schools and teachers who are already overburdened to do yet more and schools to pay for more and to add more time to the agenda. And actually, that is an illusion. It doesn't need to be done that way. There are very simple ways of including all different types of children in the classroom, which simply it's easier to do that than to not do it. It's more effective to have an inclusive sort of style classroom than not to have an inclusive style classroom. And that is very much my third book. I'd say that finally the biggest barrier, one of the things which we talk, one of the things which we do is to try and support the evolution of attitudes. Um, and I think that's actually very hard. That's the real piece is to how to enable someone to see a child who for one teacher 
they may see that that child is in distress, but for another teacher, they may see that same child as causing distress. And that has more to do with their own, with that teacher's own attitudes, life experience, emotional intelligence, uh, knowledge, different things. And there's a major piece is about how we take staff on a genuine, real, honest, fair, non-judgmental journey. Yeah, I'm hopeful. It's one of the things that I'm really hopeful of is the more inclusion schools we have, the more that attitude will change as a society and intrinsically because we have more understanding. And I think that's a huge piece of it, at least from what I've seen in my own life, is that you know when I was a kid, to your point, 20, 30 years ago, like special education was a place. It was a dark room. It was back in the corner of the school. You didn't go there. You know, it was separate lunch hours. It was separate PE hours. It was a separate class. As we've really brought more inclusion in, and as we have a greater understanding of people who are different than ourselves, you know, I'm really hopeful that these kids that are getting that experience will grow into teachers and adults that have that experience and are able to see, like you said, when someone is distressed versus causing distress or, and be able to shift that whole societal attitude around just how we treat each other, really. Whether we like it or we don't, both in terms of national and international data, suggests that our children are far more inclusive than we are. And we are a far more inclusive uh, generation than our previous generations were on every single metric. So it's happening anyway. Uh, This is about getting with the programme. And partly what we're doing is we're paving waves into in wave uh, into and ways of doing things into a field which has never really been done before. We're very much at the at the curve, at the front of the edge. And hopefully when our children are our age, they'll look back at this and just think that's all bloody obvious. <laughs> but right now we're finding our feet, right? We're just trying to, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, we try and persuade every school in the country not to exclude vulnerable children who are being abused at home. Try to not to... Um, you know, discriminate against children with different types of needs and so on and so forth, or to make sure that they're not being bullied at school. These are all things which you and I may think are very obvious, and it could be that most schools claim that they do, but in reality, they don't. And we've got a lot of work to do. And I'm sure that we'll look back in 100 years' time, they'll look back at this time and think, oh, it was really exciting times when they were just starting to talk about inclusion, because that's really how I think that we'll look back at this point and sort of think that's what happened. You know, probably... A little bit like, you know, the way we think about sort of, you know, feminist revolution and think about how, you know, when we became voters in society and connected to society and involved in society a lot more. And we look back at that time back in the 1920s and think, gosh, wasn't that an exciting time? They're right at that sort of epoch change. And really, that's relatively speaking, that's where we are. I like to think we're farther along than that, but I think you're right. There's, there's nothing that suggests that we are. We are. We have aspirations about a sort of what you describe as a sort of integrated and inclusive school society. But we're very far from that. There are very few schools which are genuinely inclusive. Most of, most of our children who go to what you call an inclusive provision in the world, what they mean is there is a special school that's over there for those types of children. That's what that means. And, and of course, that's a huge... Um, evolution from where things are in certain countries still in the world where you know quite literally the children are taken at birth taken away from the parents put in a prison style children's home um, which is diabolical where children you know are mistreated in, in horrific kind of ways and that's considered normal 
And of course, we've come a long way from there, but I'm suggesting that there is still a long way to go and that we are not there yet. Yeah, I think you're right. I just like to believe that we're farther along than we are. <laughs> I think we are still at the beginning. When we look at that and when we look at creating an inclusion school, and like you said, there are very few schools that are really doing inclusion of everyone. And your consultancy works with lots of different types of students and inclusion in different types of ways. But what do you see as the biggest challenge of really creating that inclusion school that can work with everyone? There is this piece which I find very difficult, uh, which I, I think is one of the hardest things to come up against, which is that it isn't officially uh, anywhere in the world except for certain pockets of examples that I've come across. It isn't officially a necessity to have high level of emotional intelligence to work with children, which is, if you think about it, a little bit bizarre. Of, of course, to, um, to, to work with a child who's vulnerable, who, who has challenges, then I think you, it's requisite to have a certain amount of emotional intelligence. But that isn't a requisite of becoming a, or qualifying as a teacher. And I think that is actually the biggest barrier, partly because I don't, think, I don't think that we as schools are qualified to be able to interview in that kind of a way. We haven't anywhere near had that discussion openly. I'm one of the only people I know who's actually talking about this. But actually, it is one of the major dividing points in schools. In, in, in every school in the world, you have people who are incredibly compassionate teachers and incredibly skillful teachers uh, with children from a full range of, um, of needs. And I, I, I've been an expert witness in, in, in the most tragic of cases. Um, and in those cases uh, the, the, where the child was, in the end, kicked out of the school, there were teachers who that the child had a very successful relationship with. It's just the ones where they didn't have a successful relationship was where the child really suffered. And in a way, the school really suffered, as did the teacher. Um, and that's where all the major problems occurred. Uh, but that partly caused by, by the capacity of the teachers to be able to self-reflect, to go through a process, to know who they are, and to be able to tell the sort of the emotional scale of children and so on and so forth. It's just... Very, very difficult to do if you have a teacher who's, who's sort of deeply emotionally unintelligent. And that sounds like a terribly judgmental thing, but I, I think that's also probably fair, the fairest and most honest way of putting it on behalf of teachers as well. I'm sure there will be plenty of teachers will be nodding their head and plenty of teachers thinking that's a really judgmental thing to say. Well, yes, it is. Somebody should work as a psychologist or a social worker if they have low social, low emotional intelligence as well uh, for that very reason. But there are, I'm sure there are people who don't like me to say that either. Yeah, it's definitely something I haven't heard anybody say before when I've asked a similar question is that we need to look for a higher emotional intelligence among our our educational teachers and our educational staff. And to your point, we're asking a lot of teachers to be therapists, to be psychologists, to be the interventionists, to develop the social emotional needs of our students and our young people. So they do need to have those skills to be able to do that. You know, you need to know how to do it yourself to be able to develop it and teach it in someone else. Yeah, I mean, there is a sort of, there is a, a remnant um, of a sort of 19th century style attitude towards education, which was that, you know, I'm here to teach my uh, lesson and it's up to the child to behave. And that, that is quite an old style way of thinking. So it's a very traditional approach to a classroom. I'm the teacher, the child needs to shut up and listen to me. And if they don't, then they need to get out. That still does persist in the education system. And I'm suggesting that um, it is very difficult to change the attitudes of someone who thinks that. It is, it is extremely difficult. And, and I'm certainly not the person to do it. 
I, I, you know, I'm very good at speaking in my own little echo chamber, uh, you know, as we all are. Uh, but my echo chamber is a sort of, you know, very, have a very holistic and inclusive uh, approach towards children. And therefore, who's able to persuade a teacher who comes in with that attitude to change their hearts and mind? I don't know. I haven't come across people who are. And that's where you get the splits in teachers and education for that very reason. And you'll see Twitter is a hotbed of, you know, attacks and defenses around these sorts of things. It was one of the things that was on my list to talk about was kind of the underlying mindset and the underlying core values of education and where we were before and where we need to be to move forward and, you know, to kind of change that educational paradigm to create truly inclusive experiences um, and to shift our classrooms from one where kids are expected to sit and listen. Because I know at least throughout a lot of public school that I've seen in the U.S., that's still very much the, the expectation is that kids come in, they sit, they listen, and they leave. And I feel like that's from a time when school was you know, maybe three hours long, kids would come in the morning, they'd learn their reading, writing and arithmetic, and then they'd go home and they'd work in the fields or help mom in the kitchen or whatever else needed to be done with the family, right? But now we've expanded the school day to include so many more things and asking so much more of teachers, but we haven't shifted that underlying core value of what we expect of kids. There's certainly been in certain areas of the world, a policy shift from what was described as, you know, the the chalk and talk, you know, that you have the teacher at the front of the lesson and trying to dominate the classroom through a lecture style. Um, you know, it's called the sage on the stage, right? The, um, the person who's performing at the front and everyone else needs to basically shut up. So that's all about teaching and it's about the performance of the teacher. Whereas what's shifted uh, very much in England is this, com- is this discussion not about really not that interested in teaching anymore. We're much more interested in learning. So it's facilitating learning, meaning that you have... The, the role of the teacher is not to be at the front and not to do the talking, but actually to get all the children doing the talking and to be talking about learning. And, um, you know, one of the best lessons I observed was with um, a teacher who, when I was observing them, it felt like they were talking too much. And I said, why don't you try teaching a lesson? And the aim is to just say as little as possible. And that was a truly phenomenal lesson, not because they were an incredible performer, but because actually they became, they melted into the environment where what happened was it allowed the children to sort of blossom and do their own thing. And the, ch- and the noise in the classroom was, was, was the noise of learning and the noise of sort of people were getting involved and they were interested. And, and there was a lesson where the teacher said as little as possible. That was a, in a way, you know, this um, was a masterclass in inclusive facilitative learning. It was brilliant. And that's something which has been on the agenda for a long time. Um, But that is a scary um, approach when you've got things like learning outcomes and things which are hanging over you, which you think that, you know, they've got to achieve by the end of the year and you're going to be judged on what the um, examinations results are going to be and so on and so forth. That's a really scary approach to trust that process. The children are going to learn through it rather than you you know, at least if you teach them, then you come dragging and, uh, you know, you can drag them through. And for those who don't, well, those are the 50% who don't pass. But that is the predication of our um, education system is 50% of children simply don't pass. They don't get, you know, not, this education system is not for them, right? They don't get their grades. I didn't get grades at school. It wasn't for me. And then that begs the question of what is education really for? 
if we're leaving behind 50% of our students and they're not getting grades and they're not keeping up and they're not a part of that system and our system was only built for half of the kids, what's happening to the other half? You're here and that argument of, oh, well, I turned out okay, so it must still be good, you know, could, could be there. But is that really what we want to do with our kids? Is that what we want to be teaching? Is that what we want to be showing? I mean, um, Sir Ken Robinson was a perfect example of somebody who was the false prophet. You know, the one who would stand up and tell everyone what needs to be said and everyone go, mm, yes, that's what we need to do. And they just carry on doing the exact opposite. And, you know, he, he, he was a great man and really enjoyed him very much, but there was literally nothing practical that came out of his suggesting that actually we're just maintaining a 19th century approach to education. Nothing's changed as a result. And that's partly because, I mean, not, not because in any way he's a failure, it's because we have a very, very conservative educational establishment and it's run by people who are very trustworthy, very safe pair of hands, who are very conservative with a small city. And um, they're incredibly lovely, warm, kind, <laughs> nice people who I work with. Uh, but the almost the archetypal school principal is not someone who's a maverick, but someone who is a very safe pair of hands who will be trusted to do the right thing. And the right thing means the way that we've always done it. So we don't, we don't have an, our education establishment is by definition run by people who are one foot in the past, not one foot in the future. And um, it takes people from the outside, like yourself and myself, to operate, to push and cajole and shove and to demand and try that, you know, that, as much love and encouragement as we get, we'll probably get, you know, uh, hated for it as well, you know, by very conservative elements um, in the education system. There'll probably be people who could look at this conversation and just think this is absolutely bonkers what we're talking about. And hopefully there'll be people that look at the conversation and agree and say, yes, this is right. And, and we need to yeah. move in that direction. We don't need to persuade <laughs> them. We don't need to persuade them, do we? No. They already know this stuff. I mean, I do think that that, I'm, I'm describing a frontier within the evolution of education that is very, very difficult for us. You asked about the purpose of education. There's something which is really difficult for, for, for someone like yourself or myself to admit to. And there's one thing that COVID has, a, a, has exposed is just how much education is important as a child-minding service for society. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it really flies against the, in the face. And it's not all it is. And I'm not saying that that's all it is. But that is also what it is. And that's a really difficult thing for me personally to swallow, but it is. And it's true of me. I'm a, I'm a dad of three children. And yes, I want my children to go back to school. And I'm very grateful for the fact that they've finally gone back to school here in England. <laughs> because that gives me some sense of sanity. That is a sort of um, contour of, um, of the purpose of, of schooling, an aspect of the purpose of schooling that we have just been, we have failed to really acknowledge and be honest about. And actually, uh, COVID-19 has forced us into that, to become awake to that. Otherwise, it's a full economic shift, because if our kids aren't in school, then somebody has to stay home, and then somebody has to give up a career or give up an income, and we're not economically built to live off of one income, at least most of us here. And we all... Most of us, at least I hope, have found something fulfilling that we want to do with our lives. And so we're away from our families and our children doing a career that we actually believe in and want want to pursue. Um, and that also requires that our, our young kids be 
somewhere. <laughs> if we're not watching them, then someone else needs to. And so you're right that it's been a huge eye opener that that's definitely a piece of education and all of the inequities, you know, in the world as well. For some kids, that's the only place that they get a meal in the U.S. with free and reduced lunch um, and in other countries too, I'm sure. And the safe place for them, we're maybe getting away from you know, a, a loud family or an abusive family, like school is a safe haven. And so it's all of these things that it's not just an education. Yes, I, I've uh, been quite uh, conscious of the need of the most, uh, you know, the vulnerable 20% of all children who um, goodness knows what they've been experiencing at home, both in terms of their own personal mental health, anxieties, and so on. Um, and I do believe that there's an anxiety pandemic uh, happening under our very nose. Um, and the other issue is about uh, child abuse and uh, neglect and goodness knows what, I mean, what kind of things which you're mentioning, uh, which has been happening, where school was in, in many ways a frontline service. We have not been able to provide or keep track of or be aware of in all the way that, you know, most schools and most schools in the Western world are very good at being aware of children's needs like that. It's certainly better now than ever. Um, so, yeah, I think there's lots of things going on right now, partly because we haven't been able to provide education in its normal form, but not necessarily in the deficit of education. I know that, interestingly, you know, the education minister here in England has been talking about catch-up education. And... Um, it was head scratching, sort of wondering, you know, why prioritizing that? I would have thought just prioritizing getting children back into mixing with other human beings is step one. And step two is let's try and repair the damage of whatever neglect or terrible things have been happening to children uh, on a rather mass scale. We don't want to talk about these things, possibly. Um, it's, not a, it's not a fun topic. Uh, we want to talk about you know, political aspirations for our education system. Uh, but actually, the pandemic has exposed, you know, just, you know, the level of service and, and support that schools provide on a social scale for children. It goes back to what you said about emotional intelligence and making sure that we're able to emotionally provide for our students as well as academically and building that in. But when you look at test scores and you look at catching up, that's easily measured. When you look at someone's happiness or ability to cope or anxiety level that's not easily measured so it's <laughs> it's also the easy way out for educators i think uh yeah i mean it's very difficult to know if if that's just an easy way out or if that's one of the, the kind of thing that i was sort of saying before about you know that sort of emotional intelligence in terms of what somebody perceives or um but i think what usually happens is that there is a sort of there is an awful lot of teachers that leave the teaching profession after five years, uh, and actually there's a sort of you, you've kind of got a lot of teachers who've either been teaching for five years or a lot of teachers who've been teaching for twenty years, and there's a kind of a bit of a gap in between, and so teaching becomes a sort of self-regulating process of basically you can either hack it as a teacher or you can't I mean that's one of the interesting national trends at least here in the England um, I don't know how that looks in America I haven't looked at the statistics but that's partly I think because there is a bit of an illusion about what teaching is or who it's for or who should be doing it and that's partly fueled by you know this uh, teach first you know this idea of you know grab as many teachers we want people to come into teaching well actually I don't think every Tom Dick and Harry can do teaching 
And certainly one of the things which I claimed at the beginning of my latest book was that, you know, I was never the particularly outstanding, you know, teacher. I was a good teacher, uh, but my outstanding work was more uh, working with children outside of the classroom and managing systems in schools. That was my area of expertise. And um, but to be an outstanding teacher, it's actually quite hard. We certainly don't train teachers well enough uh, to be able to do it, as I was saying earlier. Yeah. And we ask a lot and we don't pay them very much. So <laughs> it's, horrific. it's it's a really difficult profession. It's a funny concept, actually. You know, we kind of if you think about it, the, you know, the best investment, financial investment that you can do for a society is developing the, the next generation. Right. But we, we do it in very, very poor kind of a way. It's it's remarkable, really. And I, I give it a good example is um, if you if you had a more inclusive classroom or a more inclusive school. Uh, then you have less children in the end going to prison. Now, prison uh, in England costs £40,000 a year per capita. £40,000 a year per capita over 10 years, £400,000, right? It costs £6,000 to educate a child per capita to educate them. So let's say we were to increase that by £1,000. So that over the course of 10 years, you spend an extra £10,000, which is basically a quarter of a year's worth of prison time. And that probably would be a determining factor of whether a percentage of how many. So you can see we have a very short-sighted view on how we invest in the short term in, in terms of you know keeping children off a certain path or, or etc. And that's it's a bit mad that we do that. And um, that's partly because you know there are these sort of still 19th century approaches to well if they're a bad one you know if they're a bad one lock them up because that's going to help. I mean, I know that you're in California, right, which is traditionally very left, sort of incredibly left part of the world, probably the most left part of the world, apart from Scandinavia. Um, And I'm in, you know, multicultural London. uh, And so it's very easy for me to to say these things. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how you go about persuading somebody that taking a sort of, you know, punishing approach to children who are vulnerable, who've been abused at home. And, you know, the vast majority... The vast, vast, we're talking about ninety percent of people in the prisons in England have some kind of special educational need. They also have a comorbid with mental health issues, and you have a vast majority who are looked after children or children from the foster care system. I mean, it's really not rocket science to work out, you know, who's going to end up in prison and where you should put your money to invest in training and support and so on and so forth. But you make this argument to somebody who thinks that, well, if they're you know, they're sort of, they're in inherently bad or something. You should punish them and then they'll realise, they'll finally realise the error of their ways and they'll get a proper job and be normal again, um, where actually none of that has proven to work. Um, all of these things are known, but it's very, very difficult to persuade anyone who just doesn't think in that sort of inclusive kind of approach. And that's what I've been trying to say all along. It's very difficult. You want to know what the biggest barrier to inclusion is, is people's attitudes. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that we could continue to talk and and solve the world's problems from an inclusion standpoint in school. Definitely. But I want to be cognizant of your time. (laughs) So I'm going to, I'm going to cut our conversation off there. And I'm going to say thank you so much. And I think it'd be fascinating to talk more about how we can keep our, our students, you know, in an inclusion track in school and keep them educated so that they have the skills they need to be able to be really productive and capable citizens instead of some of the places where, where we end up in society. But thank you. It'd be interesting to see if anyone sees this interview, how you'll have uh, divided viewpoints, you know, between 
you know, it won't like be a discussion, you know, between, well, it's sort of like this or sort of like that or whatever. It's not like, not like including people in sort of the, the spectrum of discussions. It'll just be divided between, oh, I hate that or I love that. And that's, that's a very difficult system to operate into because inclusion is essentially the exact opposite of that paradigm. Of, shades of grey. Yeah, it's shades of grey. Mm-hmm. And the idea that we can actually somehow contain or hold shades of grey is really, really against how our society demarcates everything, especially in the States. In the States, I think, are the worst of this. You know, that everything's either left or right, right or wrong, embrace or cancel or whatever. It's just, that's just such a lot of bullshit, you know, it, and that is the opposite of inclusion. And right-wing extremism and cancel culture, on the other hand, is just, they really are, um, what's the word, fueling each other's rubbish. Uh, and they really are the opposite of, you know, inclusive. It's like somebody once said to me, they can't embrace it. You know, they hate that person. Why do you hate that person? Because they're not inclusive. I was like, um, well, that just sounds like you're not being inclusive. Yeah, but they don't believe what I believe. Well, by definition, inclusion is embracing lots of different types of beliefs. And I'm, I'm doing it here and now. I'm just saying I'm not very good at persuading anyone outside of my bubble. I'm happy to cohabit with people of different beliefs and whatever uh this is a very long goodbye my uh <laughs> oh but that's perfect and you're right i mean the u.s has become very polarized in in this and that and black and white and we're working to get back to what do those shades of gray look like and how can we all live together and how can we understand each other and see each other's points of view but part of it comes back to emotional intelligence as well until we're able to really see ourselves and where we stand in our own blockages and our own black and white, because we all have those black and white biases until we understand that it's harder to understand others. We all have a lot of work to do. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the rebel educator podcast. To learn more about us, visit reveleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.